Hello, everybody, and welcome back to We've Got Mail. This is the podcast where you control the conversation right here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibbiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. You say it with so much authority. Well, uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic, uh, and I'm very, very tired. Yes. Uh, my authority was a facade. Whitney's exhaustion is very real. <laughs> I work a lot. You do? Pretty constantly, in fact. Yeah. I even work when I'm asleep. It's a neat trick I got. Yeah. Uh, uh, and anyway, this is the podcast where we answer your emails. You email us. Hmm. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address. People email us for some reason. And we because, answer those emails right because, here on the podcast. Because we like to engage with the community, William. Well, yeah, but they don't have to engage with us. Like, I'm just mm. flattered. I, I'm endlessly flattered that we not only get correspondence, mm. but we get thoughtful correspondence. We get kind-hearted correspondence. We get informative yeah. correspondence. We get people who, who are really just excited to, to join the show. Yeah. And that means a lot to me, and that's one of the reasons why we don't like to dilly-dally at the start of this podcast. We like to just jump right in and give you as much time as possible. So, Whitney, who have we got first? Uh, here we have Ben, not that one, the other one. Understood. Uh, he writes in and says, good day, Beast and RMC. Uh, Rockmeister McCool. Oh, I get it. Uh, it be RMM, right? Rockmeister Cool. I'll be Rockmeister Cool. Well, it, it could be a uh, Rockmeister, like, like, like MC is like your middle name. Oh, Rockmeister. Put that in there. Yeah, okay. yeah, and then Cool is the last name. Yeah, Rockmeister of Cool. Uh, the other yeah. day, my wife was contemplating some mundane decision. I chimed in and said it was a real Sophie's choice, to which I received a confused glare from my wife. I wanted to explain the movie to my horrified wife. This has me thinking, though, as to how many movie references made in pop culture and other movies that are not, quote, understood by many people who have never seen them. The other day, my kids were watching Teen Titans Go, and they were making a Top Gun volleyball spoof. My kids are five and eight and have never seen Top Gun and have no references to why this would be funny. Back in the day when Netflix mailed you movies, I made a point to rent my classic movies that were... Uh, that were constantly being discussed, so I'd have a point of reference. I find that I now get many jokes on shows like The Simpsons and Family Guy because I have a better frame of reference. Mm -hmm. Side note, I too thought that Paint Your Wagon was just a joke for the longest time. <laughs> a lot of people thought Paint Your Wagon was a fake movie on The Simpsons. Mm -hmm. And I, it it actually kind of amazes me how a movie that was like a big deal when it came out, yeah, it wasn't successful, but it was big, you know, it was noteworthy. A long musical Hollywood production. Yeah, and, and they just evaporated and a lot of these so-called like worst movies ever do that mm. they just who when was the last time you heard about the oscar i assure you it's unbelievably bad <laughs> it, it is quite bad yeah uh so as to an actual question what movies do you find being referenced in the popular culture that you think people are not do not understand because they never saw the original film what are your favorite movie references in another medium uh keep up the safe keep up the good work stay safe ben um well i think an ideal example of this is actually uh gaslighting Mm. Uh, gaslighting is a term that we've heard a lot in the last four years, in particular uh, in reference to the current administration in the White House uh, trying to reframe facts and reality and also try to make it seem as though what is going on currently in politics is business as usual and not mm. newsworthy. Um, regardless of where you stand on it, it's not business as usual, and a lot of facts are being completely ignored or reshaped in order to fit a narrative, and people refer to this as gaslighting, in order to sort of just convince people of a new reality. Mm -hmm. That's not quite what gaslighting is. It's close enough, like, I'm not, I'm not one of those people who's going to complain about it every time I hear it, like, you're getting it kind of right. 
But gaslighting refers to the movie Gaslight, which we reviewed a couple episodes ago on Critically Acclaimed in the streaming club. Um, it was originally a British film. That film didn't make a big dent. And so when Hollywood came a-calling and wanted to remake it just a couple years later, they tried to basically erase the original film from existence. They, like, destroyed Prince. Mm-hmm. And they made a really excellent movie starring Charles Boyer, uh, Ingrid Bergman, Angela Lansbury and Joseph Cotton about a woman who was in a psychologically abusive relationship and her husband was trying to convince her that she was actually uh, mentally ill so Mm. that he could manipulate her. And that's what gaslighting is. Mm. And it's a great movie and I wish more people had seen it. A lot of people use that term having no idea it's even from a film. Yeah. Um, I I saw Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. Before I saw the seventh seal, so yeah, so I the idea of challenging death to a game in order to either stave off death or uh, just dismiss death, yeah, uh, it was a concept that had to be explained <laughs> to me. Now, luckily, the seventh seal was is such a popular film; like its its iconography is sort of leaked into the popular consciousness enough. That you kind of, you might know what it is. I remember seeing it referenced in a, a Mad magazine where Garfield and John were playing chess with death. Mm-hmm. Uh, I saw there's a, even a reference to it in uh, Muppets Most Wanted, where the Swedish chef, fittingly enough, is playing chess with death. Yeah. Uh, so that's something. Animaniacs did a whole bit on it as well. Yeah, and, you know, death shows up yeah. and he has a Swedish Animaniacs accent. Animaniacs did a whole yeah. Apocalypse Now episode, which, like, yeah, mm. kids love Apocalypse Now. The, actually, that that whole, like, that generation of, like, Warner Brothers animators always threw in a lot of references that were just funny to them, and most notably in the show Freakazoid, yeah. uh, which is not really talked about much. It's a cult show these days. It's it's really great, <laughs> but yeah, it's never, it, 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 never, it never had, like, the... The pop culture penetration mm. that Animaniacs yeah, or Pinky and the Brain did for some uh, reason. For my money, it's the best of that lot. But uh, I don't it's, disagree. It's uh, it was like Adult Swim before there was an Adult Swim. Yeah, it was very subversive. Yeah. And, uh, and there was a, a whole bit where uh, they go into a club and the villain does this like it's it's a seven minute set piece where they just do this big reference to Hello Dolly. Oh, yeah. And they, they interviewed the film the the cartoon makers, the people who are making the show, and they're talking about, oh yeah, there's nothing kids like better than seven minute references to Hello Dolly. Yeah. Well, yeah. And they did that all the time. It's like, well, who can we get? Who's our special guest? Well, Norm Abram is free because kids love Norm Abram. Well, listen, they're, they're clearly doing things to amuse themselves that kids won't not, won't even necessarily pick up on even down the line. But here's the thing, though. I think kids often, and I, I'm speaking this from personal experience. I'm talking about how I mm. would often uh, absorb and accept pop culture references without fully getting the reference. Yeah. Um, often, like, I grew up on Mystery Science Theater 3000, oh, which is kind of go. nonstop reference, like hundreds and hundreds of cultural and pop cultural references per episode. I only think, to this day, I don't get all of them. Somebody's going to write like this eight volume hardbound set, just annotating the entire series. They did it on YouTube, actually. They have like pop-up video, like Uh, for a couple episodes. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And it's really interesting, but like, as a kid, I would see these references and yeah, some of them I'd get and some of them I wouldn't yet, but oftentimes they would be so strange. Like my, I didn't understand the reference. And as a result, they came across not as a clever reference, but as absurdist, mm. almost Dadaist humor. Yeah, yeah. I noticed that a lot of kids, um, that I've run into like, or younger people, uh, not all of them are kids, but who like grew up watching family guy at this point. Mm. Family guy is another one that's full of pop culture references that have nothing to do with anything in the episode. They just throw it in for no reason. 
like, and like but dream but, on in that regard. Yeah, but like a lot of people find it funny that they're saying these things, or talking about these things, but they don't actually get the reference. I remember when Family Guy was first on, mm-hmm. like or like when it was first on DVD because it got canceled, and then they put out the DVDs and the DVDs were a hit, so they brought it back. In that period where the DVDs were out and everyone was watching them, I was working at a video store and a couple of young people, junior high at most, were wandering around the store and they were singing the theme song to Surfside 6. <laughs> Why? And I could tell that it was a Family Guy reference because they were singing it the way that Stewie sang it oh, in an okay. offhanded joke in one of the early seasons mm. of Family Guy. And I'm like, they have no idea what Surfside... I barely know what Surfside 6 is. It was before my time and it wasn't really in reruns a lot. Mm-hmm. Surfside 6 now only exists as a reference. Like, the actual thing. They're not going to seek out Surfside 6. No one's going to do the research and find out about Surfside 6, which is a very short-lived TV show. Mm. No, it's a a gone. 1960, that show came out. Yeah, yeah, 1960. Mm. The kids don't know it. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's, let's, just, let's just admit this. E- even no if idea. they're, like, wise enough to be, yeah. like, tuning into Nick at Night, they're not yeah. watching reruns of Surfside no, 6. No, it's not. And listen, and that's... And I've come to accept this in mm. a degree. Like, it's always weird when, like, you finally watch a movie or read a book or hear a song or mm. something, and all of a sudden, all these jokes fall into place. Yeah. yeah. I finally get the... Like, it's like when you watch... um. Bridge on the River Kwai is full of these scenes and moments and lines of dialogue. They're satirized. They're satirized, quoted all the time. And then you see them in their original context. Like, well, that's not even funny. This is just really great drama. And like, it's just sort of your mind is blown. I remember like the first time I saw that movie, my mind, that was one of those movies where like, I I suddenly got like eight different things (laughs) that have been constantly referenced when I was a kid. And, that it's, it's, I think that's part of it though. Like we're so saturated in culture right now and we're so, we're experiencing so many uh, works of art on a regular basis. We're not even not always cognizant that they're art. Mm. Things like music videos and commercials and TikTok memes and all these kinds of things. They're all, they, none of them exist in a vacuum. Some of them are directly or indirectly referencing art which came before and we might not catch up for a long time. And that's part of the experience. Sometimes it's mildly embarrassing when you don't get a reference, but mm. we're all behind on something. <laughs> I, I watch, um, I watch uh, a lot of, like, you know, sort of YouTube videos, like Let's Plays, that kind of thing, like, mm. for, just for fun. And There's a cool, cool down at the end of the day. Yeah, and... they're fun. Like, uh, I watch like, a lot of, like, Let's Plays of, like, The Sims. And, okay. uh, and But there, there's a lot of really fun people who do really interesting things with it. I watch like, one particular uh, uh, player, uh, um, uh, streamer, uh, Plumbella, who's very, very funny. But she intercuts her Let's Play with, like, all of these, like snippets from like various tv shows and i think they're reality shows i understand the reference maybe five percent of the time <laughs> but the joke is clear mm. and it's it's still funny and still functional i'm just not with it on every level so mm. i just accept that and i yeah. what i think is interesting is that there was this time where i felt like i was kind of on top of it and i was kind of getting most of the references and then I realized that there's like a whole generation of internet stuff and like kids shows that oh, I'm not yeah, on top yeah. of. And now I'm missing more than ever. <laughs> well, I've, I, I found we're, we're missing a lot because we're just not, we're old men. Yeah, we're, right? we're, we're not I'm, hip. We're not with it. We don't have our fingers on the pulse. You're, you're 65. I'm 74. And, yeah, um, that's about right. We, uh, <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> I, I'm I'm in my early 40s, so yeah, I'm, I'm in I'm, my mid 30s. I don't. I don't which, need... And fun fact: your mid 30s from 31 to 39, right in the middle. 
They're all in mid, the mid mid thirties. I'm in my mid thirties. I was born in 1978. I'm not going to hide my age. I'm in my uh, late mid thirties. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's a new video game. It's got like a bunch of color coded astronaut men. I don't know uh, what the I'm, hell that is. It's Among Us. It's what? called Among Us. Um, that's the title. Is yeah. Among Us? Yeah. Like fungus among us, like it's among us. Among us, yeah. Okay, you know what that I, is. I, I don't. I, I probably it's, will it's, never you, understand you, it. You know that. You know that party game Mafia, where like everyone like closes their eyes and like two people wake up and they're like the killers. Sometimes it's called Werewolf. Oh, or, where I know where yeah, the yeah. Werewolf version. Everyone yeah, knows yeah. some version of this. Well, it's like that, it's but video a video game. game. Okay. But it's like you're all in like a space station and everyone's in color coded space suits, mm-hmm. so you can tell them apart. And, and like two of them are like aliens who will kill everybody, and you have to try to figure out who they are before they kill everybody. And yeah. That's, right. that's, it's it's very popular right now because everyone's at home and it's a game that's like kind of social because in the mm. middle of all the murders you have to like interact with oh, like yeah. actual other players. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Okay. Well, thanks for explaining. There's that some very me. fun let's plays I could recommend for you. Lauren's East no. Side is very funny. No, Lauren's East no. Side is that's very funny. Let's play I'm, videos. I'm sure those okay. let's play videos are just fine. I'm not going to watch. We those. should move on to another letter. In any case, that's a really good yeah. point, and it comes uh, up all the time. Uh, two 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 more points. Okay. Um, B movie. We talk about B movies. Oh, comes, yeah. comes from a time when uh, films were double features. The mm-hmm. A movie of the two features was the big budget studio film. Yeah. Big and, stars, everyone, every, you know, a lot of publicity. Yeah. Yeah. And the B movie was typically a cheaper movie, uh, one that was just sort of attached to the A movie. Often they were shorter, uh, pulpier, yeah. considered disposable Gen- by Genre the pictures. Some of them uh, were very, very good. Most we, of them were just fine. We took that term with us, B movie, that's what that means. Uh, and trailer was one that I didn't learn until very late into my oh, life. That's true. Trailer uh, used to come after the movie. Yeah, after the A feature, there were... Uh, coming attractions for other movies. Yeah, they trailed the, the A feature, hence trailers. And yeah. to this day, even though they're previews now, mm-hmm. they don't come, they don't trail anything, but they're still called trailers. It's always fascinating to me just when terminology, which made perfect sense, like mm-hmm. stops making sense like 10 years later because technology changes, like, mm-hmm. like give me a ring. Phone's yeah, not or, ring. or hang up. Hang you know, up. When was the last time we hung a phone up? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it, and then a couple more decades from now, no one's going to have any idea what the hell that ever referenced. <laughs> they're not. And it's gonna, yeah. They're going to look it up and be like, oh, that's weird. Like, mm. eh, whatever. Anyway, moving on. Star 69 is ass. Uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> what was that from Scream? Uh, Scream 2. Scream 2. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Mr. McCool. I am currently watching Gaslight after hearing y'all discussing ah. it. And it spawned two questions I want to ask. Number one, it's quite a good movie so far. I'm about 40 minutes in. <laughs> oh, stop the movie to write. All right. Uh, but I already texted a friend of mine to warn her not to watch it. She was in a psychologically abusive relationship, yeah. so I knew this movie would be a trigger for her. My question, do either of you have any triggers that you'd rather be warned about before stumbling upon them in a film, TV, or a book? Uh, personally, I lost my first baby in a very late-term miscarriage. I'm sorry. So infant or pregnancy loss is something that I like to be warned of ahead of time. Now I have a happy and healthy 15-month-old Spitfire, which certainly helps but is not a complete cure for my grief. Uh Happy baby. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, that's, I'm, that, that part's wonderful. That part's wonderful. Mm. Sorry about the other bit. Yeah. Um, should we get to the, do we answer yeah, that and first? There's, and there's there? also a two. Um, know, number two, I'm not very good at giving a, a film my undivided attention. For instance, over the course of the first 40 minutes of Gaslight, I've done a variety of small house tours <laughs> while listening to the film and glancing up at the TV from time to time. It's currently paused so I can type this email. My question, how do you watch movies that are new to you, especially films uh, to watch uh, that you review on your podcasts? Are you distracted or completely focused? Do you watch alone or with your partners are you able to finish most films without pausing i don't know what that's like with a small child and two dogs in the house mm-hmm. paint us a picture if you please all the best uh Kaylin from biloxi mississippi mm. uh well oh. let's answer uh, let's answer the first question uh regarding triggers uh in my experience everyone has some sort of trigger or another to some mm. varying degree 
Um, and, and this is not a new phenomenon. The plot of Hamlet revolves around it. <laughs> um, but um, for me, as a, as a critic, I've gotten a little used to the idea that I really don't have any control over what I watch. Yeah. Um, and sometimes it is upsetting. Sometimes I do see things that are very upsetting. I, in particular, um, after my father died, and I talked mm-hmm. about this because my dad died when I was in my 30s, and I'd never had anyone in my like close family die mm. before. Um, that was incredibly, uh, as it would be, it was incredibly affecting, but I was completely unprepared for how devastating it would be. Like, mm. I had no way of knowing, like, how I would behave. And as a result, for several years afterwards, like, movies where a parent died would hit me, like, so unbelievably hard mm. that it kind of overwhelmed the rest of the movie, and I just had to be honest about that. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I need to be warned about it. Um, there's oftentimes things in movies that very much upset me, but I'm, I'm, I, I, this is not me. This, I'm not saying this is even a good thing. This is not, this is just mm-hmm. like how I've just gotten used to watching movies. Yeah, just basically just show me whatever. Sometimes mm-hmm. I'll be so upset. I'll need to talk about it. Yeah. But like, that's, I, I, but I know a lot of people who say things like if anything happens, if anything bad happens to a pet, no. They want to be more totally reasonable. You know, that all these things are, are stories of uh, sexual trauma. Totally reasonable to have trigger warnings for all of those things. These are all perfectly... Because it, it, it can be really hellish. Yeah. So I, I totally get that. But for me, nothing that is so overwhelming that I need... I feel the need to be warned. That's, yeah, that's then, personally... But I, I honestly, I kind of wish I could do that. Mm. But I just don't have the luxury. Really. Yeah, um, you know, I still have to watch it anyway. Yeah, and and you know if if a film hits uh, like one of my uh, sort of emotional buttons, uh, I I consider it to be actually a, a an insightful film that knows a little bit about that. Ever since I oh. had it, I have my my kid is five and a half now. But yeah. well, as soon as I had a child uh, like you, Kalen, I was hyper aware of whenever babies were in peril. On screen. Oh, I remember uh, you were talking yeah, about and, this. And yeah. how uh, there a, a few movies came along with films like uh, like Mother or Hagazusa or uh, or The Nightingale, where uh, babies suffer horrible traumas in those movies. And those yeah. ones were again, they're tapping into something very real in me. And I think you know you were you were you had a really like profound mm-hmm. reaction to The Nightingale. I remember you were, you were like, yeah, telling well, me about it before you before I even watched it. It's like it. oh gee, like yeah, there, yeah. Uh, there's a really horrible traumatic it's scene near the beginning. of Very the movie. triggering. It's, like, yeah. it's it's really brutal. Yeah. It's an incredible motion picture. Yeah. It's very well done, but it's. Really, really brutal, and yeah. yeah uh, oh, what was the name of that Diane Kruger movie where she tries to get revenge? On, oh, and on with the, like they, they the people that killed her family. Yeah, and they have to like buy um, a, a coffin, and that scene really. Yeah, there, there, there's a scene. Uh, oh, what is the title of that? I can't remember. It's, it was it's I, you. I saw you saw it. I didn't. So yeah. I remember. Um, oh, some something really uh, generic. Yeah, yeah. Kind of the revenge or something, something like that. Um, yeah. But Diane Kruger played uh, a young woman who uh, whose husband and, like, six-year-old son were killed in a bombing. And it's about how she has to seek out the people who... who she, she resolves to seek out the people who did it and, and take her revenge. And it's not like a badass action movie. It's actually about how tragic all of that is. Mm. But... Uh, there's a scene where she has to go casket shopping for her six-year-old. Was it in and, The Fade? Oh, I think it might have been in the fade. Yeah, in the that was it. It was in the fade. Okay, there you go. And, yeah, that's uh, it. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so, I mean, as you can imagine, a scene where somebody's casket shopping is going to be pretty yeah. harrowing and dark, and you get to see that one of the caskets is in the shape of a fire engine. Oh, it's like, so and, and I, I saw the fire engine casket, and just, I, I unexpectedly made sort of like this gasping, sobbing noise. Yeah, you mentioned um, uh, something before we move mm. on I want to ask you about, because mm. you mentioned that if a movie can can have that kind of impact on you, you find it generally insightful. Mm. Isn't it also possible that it can just be tasteless and gauche? Like they're just trying to hit oh, you absolutely. with these yeah, big yeah. gut punch moments and it's not well done and insightful? Mm. Do you have the same reaction though? Uh, no, if if it's done cheaply, that's just a bad movie. I'm okay. not going to have that reaction to it because it's a piece of crap movie. <laughs> Fair enough. It's like I, I understand what the real version of that is and what you did is not the real version. Okay. Um, I wanted to cover a, that. A, a friend, a friend of mine... Um, uh, once, so, and not to, again, not to be triggering. This is some, some sensitive topic, but she once uh, suffered a sexual assault, and she thought Law and Order SVU mm. was one of the like most absurd, clunky things on television, yeah. and she enjoyed watching it because that's a show all about sexual assault. But it's it treats a lot of sexual assault like cheap drama. Cheap TV drama. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's actually uh, like it's it's actually like not it's, very good a lot of the time. A lot of the time. I mean, yeah. uh, often it's handled quite tastefully, but oftentimes yeah. it's not. And so uh, yeah. she she gave it a lot of uh, rude names and was bringing it up all the time about how like and she watched it for like a good laugh. Okay, essentially. So if if you that see can it, be a catharsis. Exactly. If yeah. if you see it done poorly, you realize, wait a minute, you know, all of these things that we're talking about are so far removed from reality that we can kind of laugh at the absurdity of what Hollywood thinks it looks like. Uh, that being said, of course, mm. it, when it comes to art, it's all subjective and that's not necessarily just in terms mm. of quality, which I think is what people usually mean when they say all art is subjective. It's also based on what we take away from it. Mm. And a movie can be very cathartic for one person and very traumatic for another person or very affecting for one person and mean absolutely nothing to anyone else. Mm. It's all the way that we respond to art is all reasonable. Yeah. Um, well, within reason, I suppose. But like, it's it's yeah. I, my point is, is this: if you're the kind of person who appreciates trigger warnings and wants to tell people that they know when they mm-hmm. recommend movies, let me know if this is a movie. Totally reasonable. Yeah. Uh, but be, different people handle it differently. Um, we're on the second question, which is actually really astute, and I think a lot of people have been talking about it a lot. Uh, when a person sees a movie in a theater, whether you're a critic or not. There is a general sort of um, almost an isolation tank experience where you're in an incredibly dark theater. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to be dark. Everyone's sitting in the same direction. Everyone is sitting in like, there's, yeah, there's some theaters that have love seats, but mostly you're sitting in a chair that doesn't move. Mm-hmm. And you're not supposed to just get up in the middle of it or whatever. You're just supposed to sit there, point in this direction. You can't see anything on either side of you. And there's a giant beam of light that is showing you an exact image. It's basically specifically designed as an experience to keep you focused on the film. Yeah. When you're watching films at home, that's not the same thing. Whether you're watching movies at home streaming now or on Laserdisc in the 80s, it's all a much less um, ritualized experience. And when you're watching films at home and you have to discuss them on a critical level... Uh, it isn't exactly the same. I wish it was. I would kill 
to like be one of those really rich people <laughs> who has on like TV, a, a who has private like, theater. Yeah, like it doesn't have to be huge. I'm just that's that's like everyone has like their fantasy of like they win the lottery mm. and like they get like one cool room. That's my room. It's like two couches mm. and like a big projector and like that's it. I don't know any fucking else than that. Like a nice sound system. Like that's my fantasy. I would kill for that. But like. I don't have that. I'm at home. I'm on my couch or I'm in front of my laptop or, uh, uh, well, those are basically the only two options and I'm watching a movie or I'm watching a TV series for canceled too soon or some other thing that we're reviewing. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to lie in case you haven't paid attention to our podcast. My cats are distracting as hell. (laughs) They're jumping up on things. They can be distracting. I would Mm -hmm. be lying if I said otherwise. Um, that stinks. Uh, I try not to be super distracted. If I have to write anything about it critically, if I'm watching something just for fun, like I'm watching like Nailed It or whatever, and then so, I'm like, I can, I can. That's do a baking it. show. Right? I can do a baking show. I'm not reviewing the baking show. I can half watch that while I'm cooking or playing an iPhone game. But like, if I'm trying to review a movie or something, I do try to not be distracted. Yeah. I do try to give it my full attention. But it is not exactly the same. However, the one thing I will say to that is that. It's not like I'm getting an experience that no one else is getting. Mm-hmm. We're all watching it at home. We're all watching it. So, like, we're all reviewing yeah. things from the same um, place. Um, so there's that element. But, yeah, it is our job to give these things as much of our full attention as we possibly can. We're I, I, I rem- um, having some uh, – there was some uh, discussion around – uh, Peter Jackson's new movies. Mm. Uh, also on Lee's new movies because um, – the Hobbit movies and Ang Lee's film Gemini Man were shot in these like super high frame rates mm-hmm. that weren't going to be available in all theaters. Mm-hmm. And as critics, they didn't even bother with the second two Hobbit movies because it did so badly in the first one. Yeah, they didn't yeah, even bother just, releasing it, it, it did, in Didn't even look, uh, it, and, it, and it looked odd. Like it, it didn't look. It was quite, weird. It, it looked, didn't look quite so good. It's like it looked it, more like a set because it's so like it's such a like a staged. Yeah, thing. everything's really artificial. A yeah. lot of the characters are like replaced with special effects. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I still um, haven't seen a movie with that high a frame rate that was set in like the real world. Like I didn't get to see Billy whatever's mm-hmm. halftime walk. Oh like, yeah, that yeah. might have been a different experience. But watching like The Hobbit, I was like, I actually find this less immersive, and yeah, largely and it's because of the type of story you chose to tell with it. And and Gemini Man was the same thing. It's like okay, this should this should have sort of like a slick photographed artificial look and you're using this high frame rate which makes it look so realistic that you're actually being pulled out of the movie strangely enough Um, and maybe if that was the only thing we had we'd get used to it after uh, a while but we keep going back to the other frame rates and that is still normal the idea being though is uh, critics were usually shown the film like the way the filmmakers intended so we got to see the high frame rate we got to see the 3D but Sometimes you got to select. Sometimes mm-hmm. uh, the the studio would let you choose two different screenings: mm-hmm. one with a high frame rate and one without. Usually, this and, happens uh, with three D. Yeah, the 3D you version, go, or you can get a three D or two D version. Change. I'm glad that three D thing is over with. Um, I mean, they still release some, but I know, it's not but that that, that trend yeah. is is kind of done with. We uh, realized that it wasn't like the game changing. I would always the industry thing. We thought I would always choose whatever was most convenient. I didn't mm. bother choosing whatever the filmmaker shot it in necessarily, mm. because I knew audiences didn't necessarily have that choice either and if the film even if it was shot in 3d doesn't play in 2d Mm -hmm. then i have to talk about that don't i yeah Uh, i i 
reviewing the version that the filmmaker didn't intend, I felt was just as legitimate a criticism as the the version the filmmaker did intend. You know, I actually uh, something kind of similar. Mm. I was thinking about when I was watching a movie reviewed this week on Critically Acclaimed. We need to move on. I admit it because thought a long time. But um, when we rev- when I reviewed the movie The Binding, mm. which is a new Italian horror movie that's on Netflix. Um, this is a movie that was clearly optimized for theaters because there's a lot of sequences in it that are extremely dimly lit mm. with only highlights to like guide your eye. Yeah. And if you're in a dark theater with nothing but the film, that's probably very effective. If you're watching it like at home at sunset and the lights kind of like shining through the window and you can like see the dust particles in the air mm. and that is not going to have the same effect. And we might be entering a period now where optimizing a film for a theater is something that will not be everyone's top priority. And I think, frankly, probably shouldn't have been for a bit now, because if you think about it, the theatrical experience is wonderful, and I love it, and I hope it never goes away. But most movies are only in theaters for a couple of months. Most movies, after they're in theaters for a couple of months, don't have big midnight movie screenings, and even those that do, they're not screened all the time. For the most part, movies will be consumed at home. Whether that's on your laptop, TV, whatever... It will not be in a theater most of the time. Most people see the movie. Mm. We should probably think about that yeah, when we yeah. produce the films and decide how they're going to look. Well, and I've I've noticed that. Um, and I've, I've posited uh, anyway. No, I'm not, actually not going to go on this tangent about okay. sort of the way films are edited. And that's that we're, we're going off on a big screens. tangent. We want to stay uh, focused, but yeah. But to to give you a little peek behind the curtain, uh, we have to consume films however we can. Yeah, uh, I watch it on TV on a screen when I can, like on my TV at home. Yeah. Often that's not a choice because of the nature of the technology. Sometimes I can only get screeners on my laptop uh, and I have to dial it in on a laptop. And um, sometimes I'm not at home. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm in another venue. Sometimes I'm just in a a place where I have to get the information as best I can. Sometimes those online Uh, screeners have watermarks in the center of the screen. Yeah. Yeah. So I I like... Why do you do that? I like to think that Tom Hardy got my name tattooed on his face. (laughs) To play the to play Capone, <laughs> it's very yeah. committed of you, Tom. Yeah. I know, like, really going to ingratiate yourself with one critic. That's, <laughs> it's a hell of a commitment. So, how, what do you think about making this movie? <laughs> oh, good job, Tom Hardy. I spit water out of <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, okay, here is a letter from. And thank you for the email. Oh, thank you for the email. Here's a letter from Alicia. Okay. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Whitney. Uh, I'm quite far behind on we we've got mail, but back in July, so are you, we? You wanted uh, we wanted you went on a bit of a tangent about a highly specific thing, which I have a bit of odd expertise in. You were oh. discussing standalone media and the topic of franchises which don't stand apart from the books and discourse came up. Your specific talking point was Harry Potter. Mm. Uh, I wrote my honors thesis about transmedia storytelling, Ooh. and I thought I would weigh in a little on the topic. Ooh, can't wait! Thank um, you. Well, this specific example doesn't fall into transmedia. It is in some ways the precursor to it. For those who are familiar with the term, transmedia storytelling is any story which is told across media where the story is added to rather than just retold in each individual medium. Uh, Typically, this doesn't apply to adaptations as they should stand alone from the thing they are adapting. The form of storytelling seems to have been largely begun with the companion novel, but like you discussed with Star Wars, this phenomenon is spread across wider media. Your example of characters appearing in Fortnite is an especially apt one. Uh, We we mentioned that Mm. uh, the return of Emperor Palpatine in the last Star Wars movie did not occur in the Star Wars movie. It occurred in the video game Fortnite 
But which, it was, uh, it, but it was Star Wars canon, and it would, yeah, yeah, it was an actual plot point. It wasn't like a trailer that you watched. It was an actual plot point, mm. which is a choice. Yeah. Uh, while these examples can seem frustrating to the casual fan, they are specifically designed to engage the highly motivated subsection of fans. But over time, this has actually created a fascinating new form of storytelling, which is found most often in small-scale online productions. The topic of my uh, thesis was the Lizzie Bennet Diaries, a Pride and Prejudice online transmedia adaptation, which pulled in not only multiple series of vlogs, but also tweets, websites, Pinterest accounts, and even a LinkedIn page, which were not not necessary to follow the story, but were fun Easter eggs across the internet, which were beloved by the fans of the series and added an additional layer of storytelling between the videos. Mm -hmm. It also pulled in the faux realism of the story for people less familiar with Pride and Prejudice, but that's beside the point. Uh... This is now a very long letter. No, it's not. Not um, by our standards. I guess my point is that while the examples you gave in that episode can definitely be frustrating and vary in degrees of quality, those kinds of messy transmedia story bits have led us to a place where people are innovating the medium. Large media empires can be haphazard in their transmedia attempts, as everyone would be unlikely to understand the reference, but this really adds another layer of opportunity to some incredible small-scale productions, especially those which already live on the internet. Uh, That definitely wasn't the point of your original discussion, but I hope uh, this is at least somewhat intriguing a diversion for Back to July for you. Thanks for all the podcasts, Alicia, she, her. Um, Alicia, that's really, yeah. really awesome. Thank you. I, one of the earliest examples of that sort of transmedia thing where uh, two media were over, uh, were connecting to one another. Yeah, and complimenting was, each other, yeah. Uh, was actually, do you remember when they ran Spider-Man in newspapers? Yeah, I do. There was a Spider-Man newspaper strip. Written a, by Stan Lee. A, a daily Spider-Man newspaper strip. Nobody talks about it yeah. because newspaper strips are like um, almost an obscure niche piece of history now. If memory serves, uh, it was collected in at least like one graphic novel, like one yeah, giant they, book. They like you did, can but, buy it. Yeah. But at one point, uh, Spider-Man teamed up with uh, the Beast from X-Men. And there was this big uh, comic strip where you had to follow it every day, and then at the end of the month, you could go to a store and buy the comic book that would continue the story. Mm. And then once you read that, you could go back the next day and continue the story. Yeah. Um, that, that I thought was kind of an exciting way to tell a story. The I funny remember... pages used to do that a lot. Mm. I know like there are a lot of like uh, comic strip artists who had more than one comic strip. Mm. And sometimes they'd cross over like Funky Winker Bean and Crankshaft. Oh, there you go. Where, like, yeah. Often had crossovers, direct and indirect, and you might not even you wouldn't need yeah. to read one or the other. But if you saw them both next to each other on the page, you would. Connect. But uh, to your email, that I think the flashpoint for that online supplement was BlairWitch.com. dot uh, com. That was a uh, big one. Yeah, BlairWitch dot com really changed the way films were looked at and marketed. And mm-hmm. uh, while films had websites before that, uh, there were. St- they weren't being used in the same way that BlairWitch.com was doing it. Uh, they were just used as a focal point for, like, various, like, here's the trailer. It was just marketing It was marketing here's materials. Here's a poster. So, sometimes some there, yeah, there's, like, or, a, a little, like, flash game you could play, maybe. I mean, uh, that's most websites for movies to this day. Yeah. In fact, uh, if you go to the Space Jam website, it's the same <laughs> today as it was in 1996. It's a very fun thing. That's what movie websites used to look like. That's true. Uh, but... Uh, BlairWitch.com actually invented a lot of supplemental uh, story ideas Mm. that weren't in the movie. Uh, This idea of how there was a a serial killer operating in uh, Blair or in Burkittsville, Maryland, where the Mm. film takes place. uh, And how there was interviews with the guy who did the murders and all of these newspaper clippings and... All of these things added up to this weird sort of manufactured urban legend that the Blair Witch Project was real. Yeah. So there were some people who were going to see that movie 
not sure how real it was. And that, I think, is where uh, the kind of transmedia storytelling that you're referring to really took off in earnest. Or at least that's where people really mm-hmm. first started noticing it. Um, this, And I've seen a lot of like various forms of franchises uh, do this successfully and unsuccessfully. Um, I think one of the successful ones, even though they don't do it anymore, were uh, Marvel's one-shots. Mm-hmm. There was a brief period of time in like Marvel Phase 1 or 2 where when the movies came out on home video in order to sort of make him a little bit more fun, they would add a new original short film that took place like between movies. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes these short films, they would feature like characters we'd seen before, like various shield agents, for example, uh, they would fill in plot holes. Mm-hmm. For example, at the end of incredible Hulk, uh, there was a big cameo from Robert Downey Jr. In which he invited, uh, General Ross to join the Avengers Project. Mm-hmm. However, if you've seen the movies, you realize that General Ross did not join the Avengers Project, and that's just sort of the stray plot thread that never went anywhere. They realized that never went anywhere. They realized they had to deal with it at some point, so they did a short film that was two S.H.I.E.L.D. agents who are, like, having... I think they're, like, getting drunk, and they're just, like, they're at a bar, and, like, I've been asked to invite General Ross to the Avengers Project, but he's, like, the last person we want. What do I do? And they're like, well... We have to ask him because we were ordered to. But what's the absolute most annoying way we could ask him so that he won't want to do it? <laughs> well, we could ask Tony Stark to do it, and that's mm. what they did. Oh, it's, not, it's not complicated. It's not big, but it filled in a plot hole, and that was cute. Mm. Another one that I remember doing in an interesting way was the, the TV series Lost, mm. which um, did it well and then I think did it very poorly, where uh, Lost was a series that was built on a lot of mysteries, a lot of unknowns. Um, about the various characters who were stranded on this island and various mysteries that were taking place on the island. And they would have these supplemental websites and, like, scavenger hunts, and you would, like, try to figure out, like, where, like, mm. this character came from or where this reference was or what happened to this mysterious industry or whatever. And at first I thought it was fun. Then it just became too much bother to keep up with. And then when the series ended, you know, Lost didn't wrap every single thing up. Uh-huh. And the thing that really ticked me off that it didn't wrap up were the numbers. There's a series of cursed numbers in Lost. And they show up, oh, all, yeah, they show yeah. up all throughout the series. 4, 8, 15, 16, 23, 42. And they show up everywhere. <laughs> and I know this because characters like repeat them over and over oh, again. Right. Um, okay, but it was somebody who had them tattooed on themselves uh, yeah, somewhere. Yeah, whatever. But like it's, it's, it's everywhere. And they, it's one of the few things they never even bothered bringing up at the end of the series. And I brought this up to somebody. I'm like, they, they never got to the numbers and never even tried and someone said oh no they they answered that on a website i'm like okay no <laughs> you can't you can't, <laughs> can't answer a throw big that away. thing yeah, somewhere else and then not even tell you about it it's like that one uh, uh horror movie the devil inside where they put the ending on a website you pay oh, to see the movie God, in a theater no. and they, they guide you to a website at the end like it's a big car accident but they don't resolve it hmm. i'm like no no, you can't. You're, you're, that, that's, that's, that's that's the wrong way to do this. That's che- that's that's cheating. That's, that's just cheating. not giving us what I we remem- paid for. I do remember uh, the the original ambition for the Dark Tower movie, which ended up oh, being yeah. like a, a single ninety minute film. But the yeah. idea was it was going to be a whole series of films and TV miniseries. Yeah, like in between the various mm. giant budgeted feature films, there were going to be like. I forget how long they were going to be, like, 5, 10, 15 episode like, yeah. cable series that were going to, like, tie mm. the big main chapters together. And that was a good idea, but people just weren't that interested in the original film, so what yeah. are you going to do? Mm. Also, I'm, I haven't read those books, um, so I'm not sure how 
how much material they warrant. There's I know there's lot. seven of them. So, there's, there's a ton of stuff in them, I am. There's even a ton of stuff in that movie, and it's only 90 minutes long. Yeah. Uh, so that that was another big sort of project that they were working on. Yeah. Uh, but like, but oh, you know what? Mm. And one more example, just because this was yeah. uh, for my own childhood that I really appreciated. Uh, I played a video game on the Nintendo Entertainment System called Star Tropics. Oh, yeah, I remember that. And there was a point at the, uh, in the end you you play somebody who's looking for his lost uncle, and you yeah. sail around to various islands in a little submarine, and uh, your weapon is a yo-yo. And there comes a point in the movie where you can't progress in the game unless you enter no, a, a little... There's a point in the game where you can't progress in the game. Or, or, you said uh, movie. Sorry. <laughs> a point in the game where you cannot progress unless you enter, like, a little uh, number code. It's like, what? what's the code to continue? And I'm like, I'm not sure. And then it would say on the screen, tell my, uh, tell Mike, the character you play, to dip my letter in water. And it's like, What? If you go back to the box the game came in, it had a little like a little instruction booklet and a fun little letter that said, you know, dear Mike, I'm on my island. Oh, that's a, just a fun little um, yeah. ancillary thing. Turns out you if have you to t- save that. Yeah. If you <laughs> saved that letter and you dipped it in water, it gave you the code. Yeah. That's fun. I think yeah. that's fun. Uh, well, that that's not quite. I don't think that's quite the same thing, but it is neat. Yeah. Um, there's also. I remember uh, there was a video game for the Sega Genesis where it was one of the X Men video games, mm-hmm. and you were fighting this villain arcade, and it's the mm-hmm. last game, and the only way to defeat him and his giant evil computer was the game told you to uh, you have to restart the computer, and you're like, ah, oh, where's the button? And everyone, no one figured it out, and it turns out you had to restart the system. Your own computer. You had to restart the Sega Genesis, which is funny. Totally counterintuitive because that would normally ruin your save game. That that would, yeah, (laughs) halt your progress, which was neat. But I think what I think the longer thing that we need to consider, though, is that we're in this major transitional period in terms of what art media is and how a lot of things are sort of. glomming onto each other and, mm. you know, sort of becoming amorphous. And the idea that we have to follow, like, one art form, and that's, like, the true version of it, and we shouldn't have to pay attention to anything else, maybe that isn't the, maybe that isn't necessarily going to be the norm. Maybe that's a sort of an arbitrary distinction. And maybe being aware of a narrative that is unfolding on multiple different levels is going to be something that is actually encouraged and increasingly normal. Yeah. Which well, will te- be weird. The, the technology is always evolving, and we're going to see what art looks like. I'm, I'm, I still hold that Quibi is ahead of its time. I agree. Uh, right. Anyway, hey, uh, here's another letter. Uh, this one comes from Kala Farm. Hello, Kala. Hi. Um, thank, you for, uh, thank you for the great episode focusing on the movies of Mel Brooks. Ah, that was a good uh, one. I just wanted to let you know in a weird quirk of translating movie titles into other languages, Mm. The Producers was first released in Sweden using a direct translation of the original title. It was a flop. Uh, Known Swedish comedian Uka Kato loved the movie and suggested re-releasing it uh, using the title of the play within the movie, Springtime for Hitler. Mm. Upon being re-released as Springtime for Hitler, the movie was a success. And from that point on, Mel Brooks' movies became known in Sweden as the Springtime franchise. I've heard about this. Uh, despite the fact that they share no characters or plot, the Springtime title simply beca- became a signifier of a movie containing the humor of Mel Brooks. And so, in Sweden, the following titles were released over the next 25 years. Springtime for Mother-in-Law. <laughs> uh, springtime for mo- Mother-in-Law. After, after the, was that the Twelve Chairs, maybe? maybe. Oh, yeah. probably. probably. Yeah. Uh, springtime for Frankenstein. Yeah. Springtime for The Sheriff. That would yeah. be Blazing Saddles. Springtime for Silent Movies. Yeah. Springtime for The Crazies. Springtime for The Crazies. Oh, High Anxiety. Oh, there you go. 
Uh, springtime for World History, part one. Yeah. Springtime for Hamlet, to be or not to be. Yeah. Uh, springtime for Space. Yeah. Spaceballs. <laughs> and Springtime for the Slums, which would be Life Stinks. Um, what, no Springtime for Dracula? What? <laughs> uh, well, it says, uh, for whatever reason, Mel Brooks didn't find this phenomenon funny and finally complained to the Swedish translators. And so the streak broke when Robin Hood Men in Tights was released in Sweden with a direct translation of the title rather than being called Springtime for Robin Hood. However, in my heart, I always think his last two movies were Springtime for Robin Hood and Springtime for Dracula. Thank you for all your great podcasting. I became a patron primarily because of only the best. I've now gotten hooked on four or five movies, more of your podcasts. Keep up the good work. Thank Ka- you. Kale. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. I'm really, we're, we're thrilled to have and we're glad you're enjoying the stuff. And mm-hmm. that is a very, very fun thing. And it's interesting how many, like, how many movie titles just don't translate and get mm-hmm. completely shifted from one country to another. Um, one of my favorite ones that I ever heard of was, I believe, in Russia, uh, the title for Die Hard was changed mm-hmm. to He's a Tough Nut to Crack. <laughs> which <laughs> is true. It. Yeah. And uh, or at least the nut part is. And um, I always thought that one was very funny. What do they call... Um, they, I know the, the step-up movies in France are called the sexy dance movies. Oh, which is great. Which is better. Mm-hmm. And also the... Uh, um, oh, what is... What is the what is the name of the Fast and Furious movies in Japan? Oh, I forgot. Oh, it's like something. It's, it's like, like Speed Zone or Speed Guys. The Japanese tra- I think it was the Japanese translation of Army of Darkness ended up translating to Captain Supermarket. Yeah, that's a funny one. Yeah, uh, and, and yeah, that happens all the time where movies are retitled overseas. Um, sometimes we have to. Uh, Specify both titles just so a lot of people don't get confused. In Japan, the mm. Fast and Furious movies are called Wild Speed. Wild Speed, which that's is right. a great title. Mm. And when they did the spinoff, Hobbs and Shaw, it was called Wild Speed colon Super Combo, which is <laughs> Wild Speed way Super better Combo. than Hobbs and Shaw. Fast and Furious presents Hobbs and Shaw as ungainly. Just yeah. call it Wild, Wild Speed, Speed Super, Super Combo. Combo is fucking awesome. <laughs> Who wouldn't want to see that? Yeah. Come on. I like that. Um, I, I, I'm kind of uh, kind of upset that Mel Brooks would find the Springtime franchise to be funny. I guess you know he <sighs> he titles films. It's it's his business. Those are his movies. Yeah. But uh, given that the Carry On movies of uh, the series of comedies from England, yeah, they didn't have like common characters. They had some common actors occasionally, from what I understand. I've only seen one or two. Uh, Maybe he just wants them all to stand on their own. Maybe he I guess doesn't so. feel yeah. like they are connected in a meaningful way. But whatever, I the, don't think it really matters. I mean, the, it's, they're connected no, in the most meaningful way to him. They're all his movies. That, that, that's kind of like saying, like, uh, you know, do we really need to call it John Carpenter's The Thing? Like, they're all John Carpenter's Prince of Darkness, John Carpenter's They Live, John mm-hmm. Carpenter's Escape from L.A. Like, can we take that out? I'm like, what? People know who it's by. People know it's connected to a thing. I like it, personally. I think that would be fun. I would love to have, like, my stuff codified by an entire culture and appreciate it that way. The one thing that isn't mentioned there, and actually I don't remember if I ever looked up, uh, was, uh, yeah, the the streak ended with Robin Hood Men in Tights. Did Robin Hood Men in Tights succeed (laughs) there? Like, was it, like, like, did it tank because people didn't know it was a springtime film? I'd be very curious. Mm -hmm. All right, moving on. Uh, Here's a letter from Zay. Hello, Zay. Uh, Hello, Bibbs and... Luke K. 
Kumretsimkkor. That's Rockmeister McCool backwards. Got it. Um, just wanted to throw out a few queer film recommendations. Great. We're always looking uh, for more. I have seen hundreds upon hundreds because it is a big reason why I wanted to get into film criticism, especially since so many bad ones get into the mainstream. I figured I'd recommend a few that are on the fringe. Great. Uh, Killer Condom. <laughs> a German horror film about condoms eating off penises. Uh, that was distributed in the States by Troma. Yeah. And, and the uh, monster designs were by H.R. Giger, who designed mm-hmm. the alien from the movie Alien. Yeah. Uh, and, and, yeah, it's about a space alien creature that just happens to look like a condom. And yeah. it's got, like, little teeth on it. Yeah, and, inside, and, the, inside the elastic band. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's actually a, a weirdly thoughtful film about, like, safe sex <laughs> and, and queer culture and, and AIDS. Every once in a while, uh, Troma accidentally got their hands on a good movie. Yeah, they were well, the original I mean, distributor of My Neighbor Totoro in America, if memory serves. Like, they, oh, yeah. no one else well, was interested. <laughs> so, so Troma did it, yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's still a movie about a killer condom. It's, you know... As, killer as condom is not My Neighbor Totoro. No, both. Both oh. of them are, yeah. Uh. <laughs> That's the sound of me hitting my phone. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's still this, like, goofy exploitation monster movie, but there's actually, like, some thought yeah. to that one. Like, it's way more thoughtful than any of the actual Troma movies. Uh, Naked Youth, a Japanese short in a locker room situation that combines animation and live action beautifully. Okay. Uh, Uh, the entire film isn't queer centered, but it is a documentary about the Muslim punk movement, including a narrative about a drag king. Uh, this is not a T A Q W A C O R E. I have not heard Tuck-wa-core. that one. I, yeah, I don't know that movie at all. Uh, <laughs> the Paul Lind Halloween special. <laughs> I still haven't seen this. <clears throat> uh, Kiss, Betty White, and Margaret Hamilton. A must see for every October. Uh, Danzon. I know. I know of Danzon, mm-hmm. a Mexican film of where a woman's dance partner goes missing, and she goes to Cuba to find him and finds his gay brother instead. Uh, she-Man, A Story of Fixation, a wildly problematic film directed by an endlessly interesting filmmaker, Bob Clark, about a trans woman who is forcing men into transition. While it is transphobic, I think queer audiences can reinterpret the film uh, in their own lens as a fantasy on taking revenge on bigots. And that's how I watched it and enjoyed it immensely that way. I don't know that. It's weird that I don't know that. I, I thought Bob I knew Clark, Bob Clark's filmography. Yeah. That's She-Man, A Story of Fixation. I, don't know how I missed that. Okay. Um, like Cattle Towards Glow. Oh. An anthology written by famed queer poet Dennis Cooper that combines queer identity with trauma and death and other oddities. Not for the faint of heart. Oh, well, okay. that, that's up my alley. And finally, Rock Hudson's Home Movies. <laughs> do, do you know Rock Hudson's Home Movies? No. Uh, which tries to uh, recontextualize all of Rock Hudson's on-screen performances as underlying gay innuendo as told to audiences by a fictionalized version of Hudson from Beyond the Grave. Oh, that sounds really uh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, I saw it a long time ago. I, oh. I rented it from Vidiots uh, back That's in the day. That's cool. Uh, thanks for all your podcasts. And as someone who had, who uh, has had to work for this entire pandemic, I thank you for all the extra content you have been making. Zay. Yeah, those, those are all some pretty out on the fringe recommendations. And I've only even heard so. of a couple of those. So that's really exciting. Thank you for that. Um, I hope uh, people mm. check those out. Again, sounds like some of them are not for the faint of heart, but mm. hopefully you've been warned. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely going to check out a few of those. Those yeah, sound really neat. I definitely want to check out that Rock Hudson one. That sounds amazing. Yeah, Rock Hudson Hudson movies. Is, yeah, that is, sounds is, really cool. That's okay. pretty pretty good. Yeah, little queer cult oddity. Yeah, thing. okay. Um, here's a letter from David. Hi, okay. David. Uh, hi, Bibbs and Whitney. I hope you gentlemen are both doing well, keeping safe, and are generally coping coping with gestures wildly. Recently, I've been watching through the films of David Fincher, oh. which I hadn't seen uh, hadn't seen before in uh, uh, in the lead up to his new film Mank. 
Mm. Uh, one thing I found interesting after watching Zodiac and Fight Club was how, despite only having careers that span around 20 to 25 years, a small drop in the vast bond of acting history, I can see how the acting styles and on-screen energy, for lack of a better word, of the likes of Edward Norton and Jake Gyllenhaal has already influenced and shaped the acting styles of a new generation of actors. I see this in the performances of Alex Wolf, the same kind of manic energy and small yet intensive tics I see in Norton. Oh, yeah. Uh, and with Gyllenhaal, the influence of his calm, internalized emotional style can be seen, at least to me, in the, as a huge influence on the style of Logan Lerman. These two are a couple of my favorite younger actors, and as they are as... And as they are of similar age to me, I find it fascinating to see how key performers from the 90s and early 2000s are now shaping a new generation of screen talent. Hmm. This somewhat uh, tangential email is also to ask a rather wordy question. Are there any actors over the years whose work you have admired, but you can clearly directly see have been influenced in their styles by those that came before them? Hmm. I've always thought uh, thought as well that Adam Driver's chameleonic and intense style has reminded me of one of my all-time favorite actors, the great James Stewart. Hmm. I, I can I can see it I can see it uh, I'd be curious to hear your that. thoughts uh, thoughts as always thanks for the continued great content a new Bibbs and Whitney podcast episode is always a weekly highlight all the best David thank you well, we're thanks trying for to get, writing in and we're trying to get back on making more podcasts um, that's an interesting point and I think it's the sort of thing that can be a little easier to spot when you're not growing alongside the actors the yeah. kind of evolution of things like acting styles or trends in cinematography can kind of sneak up on you when you're living through it, but when you go back and revisit films from a previous era, from when you were very young or before you were born, uh, all of a sudden you're just like, whoa, damn, the 60s were different. Yeah. Or, oh, wow, Marlon Brando was absolutely an influence on so-and-so. And, -so. and mm. um, that's mm. totally a thing. And, yeah, mm. with something like Ed Norton, who I remember, I saw Primal Fear in theaters. That was a screen mm. debut. One of the few actors who was ever Oscar-nominated for their first movie performance he was like, wow, who the hell is this guy? This guy is amazing. Mm. And everyone was like keeping their eye on him for about five, six years in particular. He was huge. Primal Fear and uh, The People vs. Larry Flint came like one right after the other. Yeah, and then shortly after that, um, uh, American History X and Mm. Fight Club and just an amazing streak Mm. there in the late 90s in particular. Um, And yeah, I can, now that you mention it, like his, his influence on the wolf kids, both of them, <laughs> is really quite obvious. Actually, he does have that kind of internal smolder. And there's there's only yeah. one wolf kid. Come on, yeah. they're they're just one yeah. one masquerading as two brothers. They can yeah. get twice as much work. You're probably right. But um, uh, so that's an interesting point. I actually hadn't put that together, but you're absolutely right. I think it's because I've just been living with Ed Norton and seeing Ed Norton grow that I wasn't always thinking of his older films and how they probably did have a huge impact on people who were growing up with those movies and inspired by those types of movies to become actors, much in the same way that there were a lot of people who really wanted to be James Dean and Mm -hmm. a lot of people who really wanted to be... Brando. Brando. Brian Gosling. And, uh... Yeah. Yeah, the... Gos, Gos, Gos is doing the Brando shtick. Um, a lot of the, a, yeah. a lot of the time. Yeah. I, the, the actors I like are the ones are, where you're like, where, where are you coming from? What are you like, doing here? You know, people like you know, weird, intense performers like you know. Well, Tom Hardy is an example. Tom Hardy is an example. Hardy, Nic- Nicholas Cage, yeah. uh, Johnny Tom, Depp. I think uh, you know, Tom Hardy actually owes some of his energy to Nicholas Cage. Oh well, yeah, that's his, that's for sure. Yeah, his, just, new, Nicholas Cage calls his his broader acting style nouveau shamanic, 
And if there's there's no other actor who can get away with calling their acting style something I, that I think there's I think it's kind of joking. But, but, yeah, but it makes sense though yeah. because he does seem like he's tapping into something mm. completely strange and mysterious when he's doing that, and it mm. doesn't really follow any sort of conventional trend. Yeah, and, and, and I see Tom Hardy trying to pull that off a lot of the time. Yeah, man. yeah. Um, it's a good question, though. It, it because is I, a good I question don't to see, think about uh, acting performances in terms mm-hmm. of, like, unless, like, there's a specific performance that I feel mm-hmm. is taking a specific cue from something. But mm-hmm. in terms of, like, a whole career, I'm trying to think. It, it was pointed out to me by the t- television show The Critic uh, how uh, Christian Slater was just Jack Nicholson. He's doing uh, a yeah. lot of Jack Nicholson. And yeah. they, they had a, a – the, the bit was, here's a, a – a sequel to A Few Good Men, but they replaced Tom Cruise with Christian Slater. Yeah. And they had the same voice actor playing uh, <laughs> Jack Nicholson and Christian Slater in the scene. Yeah. That. that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. I can handle the truth. <laughs> it's just the most baffling thing. Could the stenographer played by William Devane read that back? What am I, a freaking minor bird? Yeah, like, <laughs> So, Jack yeah, Nicholson is terrible. I, by I, the way. So, so that, that, that was my William Devane. Uh, <laughs> that was me hitting my forehead again. It just, so, it just yeah, makes me do that without if, even trying. I, I, again, I was young when Christian Slater was rising, so yeah. I wasn't there to see him take influence from Jack Nicholson, which he clearly does. Yeah, uh, and I think it's even more tightly knit than that because acting tends to like all all arts within the film uh, film world goes through evolutions. There are yeah. trends within acting styles and within types of characters and even types of actors and even the way certain people look that mm. go through trends. Uh, so a lot of, you know, immediately after Brando, there was a lot of that sort of method going on in the James Dean generation as well, how uh, a lot of actors were approaching acting from the same way because that was just sort of the hip new trend within the craft. And I feel like... Even though there's you know all, all kinds of films and all kinds of actors working at all times, uh, we are sort of going through this era where there's the, a certain kind of naturalism that a lot of people are looking for, and uh, maybe we'll go through another phase of very sort of broad artificiality. Uh, so it's not necessarily one actor influencing one directly, although that happens. I think yeah, some uh, people just make that. Sometimes it's a new generation is just following what the acting craft is doing at that time. Yeah. When you consider mm. something like uh, the, the impact that um, on the waterfront had on actors, like method acting had existed mm. before on the waterfront, but all of a sudden here's this movie that's incredibly acclaimed, very, very good. Like mm. it's politics are odd in some places because you know about the context of um, Ilya Kazan and how he had spoken to the mm. house on American activities committee. And the movie's kind of a defense of him uh, naming names kind of screwing people over in the blacklist but in in if you remove that it's a very good movie and the performances from Eva Marie Saint and Brando in particular mm. are so unbelievably captivating and if you watch the other movies of the era they're unlike anything else they're mm. unlike any it feels unlike any other movie and all of a sudden you can just see like you can feel like like if you were in the audience at the time and you were an aspiring actor you'd be like that's what I want to do like, I want to do that. I want to inhabit a scene. I don't want to perform. Yeah. I want to co- bring a new level of reality to what I am doing. And that must have been a huge moment. That must have been a huge flashpoint for a lot of people when they suddenly realized 
that method acting isn't just like one actor standing out in a career, which can be an entirely new way of telling mm-hmm. a story. So, um, but yeah, you're right. Yeah, I think there are yeah, trends yeah. that are yeah, perhaps a little more influential than individual people a lot yeah, of the time. There are a lot of uh, classically trained actors or uh, method trained actors who really mm-hmm. subscribe to the method. Uh, look up the, I don't want to go into what the method is here, but yeah, look up uh, Konstantin Stanislavski and figure out what, what his system of acting was. It's actually this very complex emotional structure that he came up with. Uh, you're essentially living as that part. You don't drop character. And uh, Daniel Day Lewis is famous for this. Yeah, uh, and he, I, he actually texted Sally hmm. Field in character as Abraham Lincoln hmm. to like prepare for the movie hmm. Lincoln, uh, which is hilarious. I would kill to see those texts. From what I understand, uh, Zoe Saldana and James Cameron would write each other letters in the Navi language to prepare for Avatar, just so yeah. she could be that much further in character. Also practice yeah. the language. And, uh, yeah, really and also, useful, yeah, learn, yeah, learn how to yeah. speak the, this, this imaginary, one, yeah. imaginary language. Uh, but these days when you've run aground on a method actor, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, I, uh, as I understand, Jim Carrey was very deep into character when he was making Man on the Moon. Oh, yeah. And he wanted everybody to call him uh, Andy when he was on set. Because he was playing Andy Kaufman. Andy Kaufman. If you don't know the film, yeah. Really good. Yeah. And... Uh, and that scene is like kind of backward and weird now mm. that the sort of idea that you need to study really deeply into acting rather than just practice your craft it's out of uh, in film anyway it's very out of vogue is my point whereas mm. there was a time when it was up and well because a lot of times people will do it but they'll only do it for characters in which they have to be assholes yeah like you like, always like, so you the, get like the mystery the joker you yeah know? like multiple people who have played the joker Hmm. Have done this. Heath Ledger, no, at no point have I heard of Heath Ledger actually being mean, being the Joker. Hmm. But we've all heard stories about Jared Leto being an asshole to other act to other actors, like he, in the set was, of Suicide Squad, because hmm. he was allegedly because he was trying to be in character. But it sounds like he's just being a dick. And uh, Joaquin Phoenix was apparently so in character as the Joker that he actually made it a difficult working environment hmm. sometimes because he would like, yeah. walk off sets or he'd injure himself in a scene because he was throwing himself into it without any care for his safety. And I've seen like memes like Joaquin. Phoenix like broke his own knee or something mm. doing the scene and that's so good like um, that's unprofessional if you ask me because yeah, yeah. you're actually jeopardizing a yourself and the production depends on you which means other people's jobs mm. depend on you you that's actually yeah. like I don't think that's always a good thing no <laughs> there's, no, there's a no, no there's that can definitely be crossed I, I, I took some acting classes and what they taught us was when you're studying the method and you're getting really deeply into this emotional state you're really, you're really feeling it on stage, and you start bawling. The scene requires you to cry. Uh, that's great, but there's still an audience there, yeah, and they aware. still have to understand you. You can't just sort of bawl and not say, like, say the words mm-hmm. out of the, the deep depths of your heart, but if the people in the, the audience can't understand you, that's a bad scene. Some, uh, um, Scott Weinberg uh, tweeted the other day, he was talking about how uh, there's this one bit in Star Wars that's I've always found a little distracting and I think he's the only part the person ever really talk about it was mm. a big part of the movie takes place on a planet called Tatooine later on in the film Princess Leia refers to a different planet called Danatooine Dantooine okay. which is just kind of weird I remember the first time I saw the movie I thought she just said Tatooine kind of weird we were gonna mm. go back to that planet turns out no she's talking about a different planet and he just tweeted that you know if you think about it maybe you should have named that second planet something that didn't sound like Tatooine <laughs> yeah. and I got into a conversation with, I retweeted this and uh, I, I got into a conversation with somebody and I'm like yeah but wouldn't there be planets with similar t- names I'm like yes yeah. th- there would but here's the thing reality even the reality of a fictional environment at some point needs to to give way to narrative clarity. Mm-hmm. 
And the point I, I made is there's a lot of people out there with the same name. If you looked up the white pages, if you had such a thing, you would see a ton of Jack Smiths mm-hmm. or, you know, or Amy Joneses. There's probably at least a handful of those in any major city. You wouldn't put all three of them into a room together. They could all be in a room together, but it would be confusing. As a writer, you want to make sure they don't all have names that sound alike. So narrative clarity mm-hmm. is really, really important. And, and as the, a result, mm-hmm. like something like not being able to deliver your performance in a way that the audience can understand or or even just trying to be aware of the fact mm-hmm. that you're acting in an environment, aware of the artifice, because you are at some point playing to a crowd or have other responsibilities mm-hmm. besides just being the character. That's really important. And, yeah, you, we can nitpick about it, but seriously, I'd rather it be clear. Yeah. 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 Remember watching Sleepy Hollow and how the, the two warring factions were called the Van Garretts and the Van Tassels. It's like, couldn't you give them kind of different names? Yeah, especially considering there's a lot of monologues in the movie where mm. names are thrown about like uh, fucking confetti. No, and it's hard to follow. Turns out she used to be a Van Garrett, but now she's a Van Tassel. What? Which one was which again? Yeah. Could you could you name could one, one of them wear yellow? I don't know. What do you <laughs> name, name one Flurry McChocolateson and name the other one? Buck, so I can tell them apart. <laughs> Love me to meet, and let me introduce Brack and Bob. Yeah, <laughs> from uh, Men in Black. Uh, here's a letter from Cody. Hello, Hi. Cody. Hi, Cody. Uh, hello, Bibbs and Rockmeister. Hope you are both well. Uh, I'm very tired. Uh, my question is, what are you? <laughs> it's nothing to do with movies. What are your favorite simple toys? Mm. Uh, by simple, I mean not electronic and not based on a movie or TV show. Mine is still. The tiny bouncy ball. (laughs) If I find one, I will still bounce that thing around to see how close to the ceiling I can get. I look forward to your answers. Sincerely, Cody. Our favorite Um, simple toys. I love this. uh, The little bouncy ball. Always good. Copyright the Super Bowl. Mm. Made of Zektron as Whammo Toys patented back when they first invented it. Of course I know this stuff. Uh, yeah, Whammo Toys is responsible for so much. They're the ones who uh, ended up patenting the Frisbee. The Hudsucker mm. Proxy is a lie. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a joke. Or that was a hula hoop, but Whammo also but No, they, the he invented the Frisbee in the last That's scene, right. remember? The word Frisbee, however, is a brand name. It was actually a pie company. Mm-hmm. And the, uh, the original Frisbees were just kids figuring out that if you turn them upside down and fling them, they go far away. Yeah. So they referred to the Frisbee as the dish you throw rather than the pie you eat. The pies are lost to history. Yeah. And now Frisbee is is the common name for this, the flying plastic disc. Hilarious. Uh, the story of the invention of the Super Bowl is interesting. Oh. They invented this new kind of – this was in the 1950s. There's a lot of like chemical experimentation following the war. There's all this war surplus technology that they don't know what to do with. And so a lot of these rubber compounds were leaking their way into uh, consumer markets. The, in, uh, the inventors of the Super Bowl decided to make one. They made it about the size of a medicine ball. It was gigantic. <laughs> what? And they took it to a hotel to test it. Like, they were on the road for, oh for some reason. God. And evidently, like, they hucked it down a hallway. They didn't expect it to bounce as much as it did. And it smashed a window and, like, flew out <laughs> into a parking lot. And they knew they had a hit on their hands, but they had to make it a lot smaller. <laughs> Can you imagine if, like, like, the basketball-sized Super Bowl caught on this gigantic heavy wad of rubber? Mm. Uh, yes, I love I love Super Bowls. I love Slinkies. Mm, slinkies are great. Uh, Anything I can play with in my hands. Yeah, something like, really that's really I don't tactile. Need to, yeah, tactile is great. Mm. Uh, for me, the thing that I always loved, and it's not as simple, but it's like one step up, 
hmm. was uh, I forget what they were called. You remember those like marble plastic ramps you could stack on top of each other, and the marble would slide down like a ramp and like oh, a yeah, curly cue, and then slide down another ramp. My son could... has those. He really likes them. You remember, yeah. remember those are called? I want to call them Marble Madness. Marble, like marble a... runs. They're just marble, marble runs. runs yeah. Marble runs. Love those. Mm. Those things are cool. They're satisfying. Mm. There's something that just really hits like the like so the obsessive compulsive part of my brain. Something really primal about yeah, those. Really, really just yeah, satisfying. Like, I never had yeah. a marble run when I was a kid, but we did do a lot of domino runs. We, oh, we set up putty. dominoes. Silly putty for silly sure. Putty. I love silly yeah, putty. Yeah. It's so cool. <laughs> oh. And you can still get it in that sort of yeah, like that egg. That, that yeah, in the little red egg, that little pinkish blob you get. Mm. Um, I never get one. I always get two, and I mash them together and store them in the same egg. Nice, because you need more silly putty than just everyone that needs more silly putty. Uh, a lot of a lot of people, because I have a young son, I'm in toy stores a lot more often, so I know I'm like up on the toy trends. Ah. And pretenders to the throne have been getting in on the putty game. Bad. There's this new ultra expensive form of putty, and they call it like brain party putty or smart putty. Mm. Spell putty with an I, and. Uh, it comes in a gigantic tin, so you get a whole heck of a lot more, which I guess is the plus of it. Mm-hmm. But it costs fifteen dollars for si- a lot. for silly put fifteen bucks for like a, a better, little tin I, I of feel silly like putty. Get like a ton of silly putty for fifteen dollars. Yeah. I, I remember at one point you could actually uh, g- like write to silly putty and ask for silly putty by the pound. Wow! And a pound of silly putty is gigantic. Uh, Bubbles. Just bubbles. Bubbles. Just blow, you can't bubbles. go wrong with bubbles. <laughs> bubbles are awesome. You can make them at home. You don't even need to buy it, but yeah. you, you, you can do it. And let me tell you something. Hmm. If you have cats, <laughs> bubbles are the shit. A lot of people like try to say like catnip bubbles, which are kind of fun for cats, but they don't need it. Yeah. Like, just the hell is, what the, what the hell is, fuck that thing. Bam. Did you ever. Hit that with your paw. Bam. Did you ever have, uh, ever try out candy bubbles? I'm not even sure if this is still a thing. I've seen that around. I've never tried it. Yeah, it's it's edible bubble solution. You yeah. can blow bubbles, and the idea is you blow bubbles, and then you eat them out of the air. It's like yeah. this Willy Wonka nightmare bullshit. Well, is it the and, ones that you like? Actually, like um, like the the actual like film has like mass, and you can like collect it in your hands, or do you have to just eat the bubble in the air? Like, you have, you just you eat the bubble in the air, or if you get impatient, you just drink the solution. Because I've seen like um, like in some movie or something at a fancy restaurant where like they had like these giant bubbles, but then like the film was just thick enough. That oh, it that it would like, solidify. That it would solidify air, enough, yeah. and you could pick. I've it seen up. like yeah, yeah, fancy cocktails that do that sort of yeah. thing. It's kind of molecular gastronomy I, stuff. I love the um, I forget what they're called, but those big like um, uh, uh, what do you call them? Like plates of like little pins, and you put your hand on them and like make an impression of your hand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're not sharp; mm. they're just like they. There's another, tac- there's another hand. tactile toy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love those. Oh, <laughs> oh, what are the uh, the like perpetual motion balls you have on your desk? Oh, I, um, not cat's cradle. Um. Kind of like a cat's cradle. It, no, it, it's it's someone's They're someone's clicky clack balls. That's the, what I call them. But like the kinetic ball toys. Yeah, 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 where like you you pull one out and then they just hit slap 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 slap. Yeah. I had one of those. It was one of my very favorite things, and it was the very mm. first thing that Luca chomped. Oh, like he just bit the wires, and mm. just now I just don't have it anymore. And mm. so I love you so much, Luca. <laughs> Newton, I love you so it's much. Called a, it's called a Newton's Cradle. Sorry. Newton's yeah, Cradle. I had to look that up. Luca, I, the I was, first thing Luca destroyed yeah. of mine of any significant value was a Newton's Cradle. You first, would, but not the last. You would love, and here's a new innovation. You would love kinetic sand. Oh, that shit's cool. You I've played with it, okay? Yeah, sand. like that's you mash me, it together yeah. and it kind of stays still, and then it eventually just sort of crumbles and yeah, it melts on your hand. Yeah, that stuff's yeah. really cool. It's cool. Uh, I, get, I thought I got some of that for your son for Christmas once. Yeah, he's still. He's yeah, still yeah, 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 yeah. 
That's cool. Yeah, kinetic sand is really fun. It reminds me of when we made oobleck as kids. You just mix mm. cornstarch and water, uh, and it it, be- it becomes really gooey. Mm. And when you reach your hand into it, you kind of scoop it up, and it feels solid. But then you hold it in your hand, and it like melts over your fingers. Which which one of those like mm. old tiny like Santa's elves toys did you think was bullshit? Because I'm going to tell you right now, whoever <laughs> invented the cup and the ball was mm. a dick. That is not a toy. That is a curse. Uh, paddle balls. Paddle balls? You can't do paddle like, balls? Cu- cup and ball I can do. I can catch a cup. See, I can, I can catch a, a ball in a cup. I can't do a cup and a ball. I have never been able to do a paddle ball, and this is years of trying. I can uh, do yo-yo tricks, uh, but I can never do a paddle ball. I can never. I can yeah. do a yo-yo. I can't do tricks with it, but I can just okay. do the yo-yo bit. So I was always fine with yo-yos. Mm-hmm. Wasn't in love with them, but I yeah. got the, it got the job done. But uh, yeah, that mm-hmm. cup and a ball... Fuck that. <laughs> oh, You're talking about God. all the stuff I got at, like, ski ball prizes and stuff. Yeah. Do they still make plastic army guys? Yeah, the they green do. ones? They do. Okay. You can get little plastic army yeah. guys in a bag. Okay. Um, plastic army guys, Hot Wheels are still really big. Oh, yeah. Hot, 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 Wheel, Hot, Wheel, Hot Wheels never yeah, went Hot Wheels are primal. Hot Wheels are just little, little uh, toy cars that look good. I, what, when is that going to get old? I find it kind of BS that the same company, Mattel, owns both Hot Wheels and Matchbox. What? Because they, yeah. Yeah. They, and they use the Matchbox brand to do, like, vehicles that exist in real life, whereas Hot Wheels are like, here's Fantasy Dragon Car. And uh, uh, so I, I guess they're slightly, the branding is slightly different. But, yeah, they used to be rivals, Matchbox yeah. and Hot Wheels. Uh, well, we're starting to notice, like, they're actually, like, uh, yeah. Congress has declared, like, I think it was, I forget, it was, like, Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook are now, like, legally declared monopolies. Yeah. yeah. Because, yeah, okay, you're allowed to make another social media thing. Nothing's going to have the penetration Facebook has, and mm-hmm. they have the ability to sort of set the standard and prevent, right. like, and same thing with Amazon and Apple. Mm-hmm. Like, they're actually like, they've got a stranglehold on mm-hmm. their industries, and I feel like toys have been doing that for a while. Like Hasbro has kind mm-hmm. of just bought everything. Well, well, it's Mattel. They uh, oh, is it Mattel? Well, Hasbro yeah, and Mattel. Those are yeah. the two. Like those two um, things. If you're not one or the other. Yeah. But Matchbox were named because they had to fit in a Matchbox. Yes. The, the inventor's children were allowed to bring toys to school, but only if they were little. They had, and the standard that the school set was they had to fit in a Matchbox. Mm. So we invented these little tiny cars that mm. kids could drive around on their desks. So, Hot Wheels came along and said, wait a minute, these are just solid hunks of metal. Uh, or maybe they're plastic. No, they were metal. And uh, so they said, well, how about we do ones with wheels that turn? And we'll call it Hot Wheels. And they took over the market. And they were yeah. more successful than Matchbox ever since. Nice. And then Mattel bought them both. So, so who cares now? Yeah. Oh, it's the same company. Ah, history. Hmm. All right, that is We've Got Mail for this hmm. week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We had a lot of really interesting questions. Uh, we were really grateful for that. We're grateful for your recommendations. We're grateful for your insights. We're grateful for you being you. We would not be here without you. Uh, we want to give a very special thank you to our patrons, of course, over at oh, patreon.com yes. slash critically acclaimed network who get to vote for future episodes and get a ton of exclusive podcasts besides like a lot of them. Like it's absurd. Uh, but uh, for everybody who just listens in, we just seriously thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being you. Thank you for contributing. Thank you for uh, just being awesome. You're all awesome. And we're really grateful to you. Um, so again, if you want to write in for a future episode, it's letters at critically acclaimed.net and we might read your letter on the air. We don't have time for all of them, but we read as many as we can. Mm. Um, and, uh, you can of course find us on Twitter at critic acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And I think that's about it. Everyone stay safe, stay sane. Uh, we're, we're all, we're all, we're all trying our best right now and 
Hmm. Boys are not easy sometimes, <laughs> but just knowing you're all out there and we're all in this together really, really helps. So thank you. Thank you, everybody. Sincerely yours, Bibbs and Whitney.